This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Theo Hobson is a British theologian and journalist currently serving as a lecturer in systematic theology at General Theological Seminary in New York City. He's written a number of books, but most importantly, his new book is entitled Reinventing Liberal Christianity. He was educated at the universities of York and Cambridge, and he did his doctorate at Cambridge writing a thesis on Protestant theology and rhetoric. He's speaking to us today from New York City. Dr. Theo Hobson, welcome to Thinking in Public. Sure, thanks for having me. Dr. Hobson, your new book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity, begins by suggesting that there are really two different liberal Christianities. Can you expand on that? Yes, I can. Um, I think that there's not just two, but there's a nice uh, polarity. There's a good and a bad tradition. And I would say that the good tradition is very much tied up with political liberalism. And that means the liberal state and possibly secular liberalism, although that's a much contested term. Um, and so the, the good tradition simply affirms freedom, freedom of religion, uh, political freedom. And I think that uh, Christianity should be deeply involved with those things. It should be in dialogue with them. Now, the other tradition, what I call the bad tradition, um, is more like the Enlightenment rationalist kind of tradition, which says that we can modernize Christianity in a, in a rationalist direction. We can get away from faith, we can get away from ritual, we can get away from the church, and we can create a new thing, a kind of modernized Christianity for enlightened people. And I I see that as a very uh, negative tradition. It's it's had a deep negative impact on Protestant thought, especially in the last century or so. So I'm trying to unpick those two traditions. Well, and you do so by means of a rather elaborate narrative about which I'm going to ask you to speak in a moment. But let me just ask you about these two versions. In fact, you clearly identify them as a good version and a bad version of liberal Christianity. Hmm. Isn't it true that this, uh, this what you identify as the bad version, the version of uh, emptying Christianity of its cognitive content, its doctrinal content in light of the challenges of the Enlightenment, isn't that what virtually everyone in the English-speaking world thinks liberal Protestantism is? Yeah, that's the problem. That has come to dominate uh, the discussions. And in a way, I think um, that's the fault of liberals for not foregrounding the other tradition and also for allowing themselves to be um, somewhat taken over by the negative tradition. So I think there's a big task of clarifying and sorting out and saying there has been a mistake in the past and that liberal... Protestant theology has gone much too far in this uh, rationalist direction, and we need to uh, stop and think, and we need to look pretty hard at how the tradition has developed, and we need to affirm the positive within it and be critical of the negative. Well, in so doing, you're using the word liberal in, uh, well, at least a couple of senses, maybe even more. But doesn't that point to the fundamental vocabulary problem we have in the English language where the word liberal as applied to politics and and especially to the longer Western political tradition is is actually used in a very different way than at least it's customarily used in reference to theology? Yeah, it is a very uh, problematic word, and and I suppose one just has to define the terms with each uh, new theological uh, account one's giving. Um, I, I, I would say that it's important to not be too pejorative, not too negative about political liberalism, although, of course, in this country uh, there is a tendency to, to do that. But, but on the other hand, you know, this, this country values freedom very much, and that's a form of liberalism, and it comes from uh, modern political thought. Uh, in which religious liberty, for example, is very important. And as the word liberty suggests, that's something to do with liberalism. So I think we've got to look back at the history of political liberalism and see see the positive, including the theological positive. 
Now, the theological meaning is complicated again um, because it very often means the Enlightenment uh, philosophy and so on. And uh, I think we need to unpick that and try and uh, find find uh, different strands within that rather than dismiss it as one thing. When you're talking about these two liberalisms, and clearly you're encouraging uh, liberal Protestants or mainline Protestantism uh, to move in the direction of this good liberalism, you're telling a narrative here, and in so doing, you're actually revisiting many of the personages and movements in terms of theology and going all the way back, I might mention, basically to the New Testament, but especially since the Reformation. Mm. Can you kind of follow that narrative, uh, trace it out for us a bit, so that we understand uh, how you see the trajectory, both of the liberalism you want to reject and the liberalism you want to embrace? Yeah, okay. Um, I only deal quite briefly with the New Testament, just because, because of course, you can't really talk about political liberalism or theological liberalism in relation to it. But I'd say that the seeds are there of uh, transformations that would occur after the Reformation. Um, One of those things, I say, is Paul's idea of freedom from the law, Uh, and that is taken up after the Reformation by certain thinkers who say we have a warrant to question religious institutions, religious authority, religious rules, and to rethink the very essence of the gospel. And that's um, partly through rediscovering Paul. And another very basic idea in the New Testament is simply the rejection of uh, theocracy, of of a unity of church and state, which in a sense you have with the ancient Jews, and in a sense, you have with most ancient religion, there's just an assumption that religion will be very much tied up with political order. And there's something pretty new about Christianity uh, rejecting that unity, or, or at least questioning it. Of course, uh, future developments uh, go the other way. But uh, to begin with, there is that. And I think that I, and then I trace the Reformation uh, in some detail. And I would say that Luther is very important in uh, preparing the way for the political liberalism that will emerge in the next century. Uh, and he does that by questioning the church and ensuring that politics is fully secular and that religion is within its orbit. Uh, but even he is dubious about toleration and only in the next century, in the 17th century, do you get strong arguments for a fuller sort of toleration where instead of imposing one religion, the state begins to allow freedom of different sorts of religion. And you get this in the Civil War, at the English Civil War era in the mid-17th century, uh, of course, it's a bit of a mess, that whole period. But within it, there are these bold ideas of separating church and state. And I think, by the way, uh, Americans are not sufficiently aware that their own um, revolutionary ideas come from that previous English Civil War. Absolutely. Let, let me ask you, in tracing the story, and I do think in many ways the most crucial part of your narrative could be described as from Luther to Locke, that is from Martin Luther to John Locke. Yeah. Uh, you describe Luther in terms of what you call uh, intermediate secularism, and then you get to John Locke. Locke but, but as yeah. you're dealing with John Locke, you still don't have something like the secularity or the secularism uh, that, that would now mark the Western condition in most nations. Yeah, you begin to get that with uh, John Locke, I think. Uh, because he suggests that toleration is almost a natural, rational feature of modern civilized politics. And an important figure just before him is John Milton in the English Civil War time. And there you have a liberal political vision that's much more strongly rooted in a radical Protestant Uh, zeal or enthusiasm, a a particular religious vision which says we must 
uh, have a new sort of politics because God wills it. God wills a new sort of state. And that through being a true Protestant, you will also be this new kind of political being uh, trying, to, yeah. trying to create a new sort of liberal state. This was the very earliest form of the liberal state. And so after the restoration of the monarchy, you get John Locke's more cautious version of that, which separates um, that liberty vision from any particular religious narrative. And it's difficult to judge whether that's a good or bad thing. In, in a way, I think it's regrettable that you get a separation there of politics and religion, and that the vision becomes, in a sense, secularized, although he still uh, says that you must believe in God and uh, atheists are not really considered uh, legitimate. But in a sense, it's semi-secular now with Locke, that vision of the uh, religious freedom and, and toleration. Before leaving the Reformation and, and, and moving too far into the modern age, I want to go yeah. back to the distinction you make between Luther and Calvin. And uh, you identify yeah. Luther, again, as uh, representing a position that might be described as intermediate secularism, but you're really not putting Calvin in that category. No, I think not. I think Calvin um, kind of recreates a unity of um, church and state, which is kind of, in a way, mirroring the uh, Roman Catholic situation with, with, a, with a very strong authoritative church. Um, and, of course, Calvinism could be used to challenge uh, political orders and was kind of used as a revolutionary movement. But I see Indeed. there's still a um, quite a strong echo of a kind of theocratic mindset of we must have a unity here of religion and politics. And I don't think there's the same openness in Calvinism as there is in Lutheranism. Yeah, I would argue at least part of that has to do with their political context, uh, the difference between the princely states of, of Germany and uh, then the city units of, of Switzerland. But nonetheless, yes, that's true. there are theological issues, I concede there, that uh, that separate the two. But as you come yeah. into the modern age, as an historical theologian, uh, I uh, am uh, reluctant to ask you to come up with a list of positive figures and negative figures, but there are clearly... Uh, those who are major players on the the scene of uh, especially English speaking theology, but also on the continent, who are uh, are representing this engagement with modernity. That's what separates a Schleiermacher, for instance, in his uh, lectures to the culture despisers mm. of religion, from from Luther, who didn't know any. Uh, and, and so bring us up into the modern age where the anti-supernaturalism and the increasing secularity of, of the modern age presents the context for what most of us know as liberal Protestantism. Right. Well, I think what you have in the 18th century is this huge movement, which is basically deism, which is the rational version of religion. And in a way, it's the most important thing that happened in all of modern intellectual history is this huge triumph throughout Protestant nations, especially also some Catholic nations, of a form of rational theology that really preceded the Enlightenment, the secular rationalist Enlightenment, or prepared the way for it. And I think the influence of that movement can't really be overstated. You know, it was still dominating theology in the 20th century, mid-20th century, I'd say. Um, and I guess the basic narrative is that we must move away from superstition, we must move away from revelation to a large extent, and we must understand Christianity as the universal human religion. And you know, and this a is a part of the that. project of, of human liberation, according to its proponents. This was necessary yeah, for human I mean, beings and, to be liberated from the past. That. Yeah. That's right. There's a, there's a good case for that. that there are lots of humanistic uh, innovations and movements that come in through, these, through some of these insights, and they uh, contribute to, well, for example, the founding of the United States. You know, that's quite an important project that deism is partly related, uh, partly to be thankful uh, but it, it creates this huge theological complication of how then do we talk about the essence of Christianity? How can we recover an understanding that it's based 
in something very particular, which is faith in Jesus Christ and the ritual um, performance or remembrance of Jesus Christ. And even uh, in the 19th century, you get theologians and philosophers who are moving a bit away from deism and saying, you know, we're not rationalists anymore, we're more uh, influenced by romantic thought, for example, and social thought, and Schleimach is one of them. And he, in a sense, is rediscovering the church as the basis of Christian theology. Uh, Karl Barth, for example, gives him some credit for that. Uh, But he's still, I argue, within the overall framework of deism, and so is almost all Protestant theologians um, of that time, Hegel, for example, they, they're still within its um, framework. I would say in many ways, I found that to be the strongest part of your narrative. And uh, I think you, you very effectively point to the, uh, the rise and almost imperial uh, triumph of deism uh, within Western culture. But that's where I want to ask you the question. In, in terms of the response to deism, and uh, particularly in response to deism in the English-speaking world, uh, but uh, also on the continent, represented by, by the Germans like Seiermacher, if the wrong response to deism was the, uh, the anti-supernaturalism embraced by, uh, by so many who became known as liberal Protestants, where would you otherwise have had them to go? Well, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think that they needed to find a nuanced uh, middle way, I suppose, in which they don't simply return to the um, uh, previous centuries idea, ideas of uh, theological orthodoxy, of uh, forms of Calvinism, um, maybe I'll include Methodism and Wesley there, that I, that I think that there is a narrowness to that sort of focus and that it was important for them to be engaging with the Enlightenment and with uh, political liberal thought. But I, I would argue that they needed to start untangling these traditions and to say, we must try to affirm a form of um, liberty-loving, freedom-loving uh, Protestant Christianity that does not uh, have this limitation of deism, uh, but instead it begins to understand in a new way its basis in faith and its basis in ritual. That's and, what I found so interesting in your argument and where I wanted to come back and, and, right. and probe a bit, because uh, what was particularly being denied, specifically, explicitly being denied, uh, was the supernatural content of Christianity. When Slymarker was responding to those he identified as the cultured despisers of religion, they were despising supernatural truth claims, and, uh, and, and quite directly so, as were the deists uh, at large. Uh, to what extent do you uh, project this, uh, th- this good form or healthy form of liberalism as retaining that theological or doctrinal content? I think it retains it, but it maybe learns, it maybe thinks about it in a, in a new way. It, it maybe uh, enters into a sort of dialogue with biblical criticism, and it accepts that we can't uh, keep talking in the way of, of the previous centuries about Orthodox doctrine. But I, th- I think it, it needs to start having a conversation with um, with rational critiques of religion, but also to say, let's look at what religion actually is on the ground. It is about worship, it's about faith, and so on. Uh, and so I suppose it's a sort of process of having a conversation. In his new book, Theo Hobson is arguing that there are really two, you might describe them as rival versions, of liberal Christianity. The first is the liberal Christianity most of us know, that liberal Christianity represented by the mainline Protestant denominations, a liberal Christianity that gains that modifier liberal by means of evacuating Christianity of its supernatural content in face of the challenges of the modern age in the Enlightenment. 
In contrast to that, Theo Hobson is arguing for a liberal Christianity that's based in the worship and ritual of the church and an eager engagement with the liberal state. In other words, he's arguing for an embrace of political liberalism, and he wants to add to that a theological liberalism that is deeply engaged in Christian worship, in ritual, and in Christian symbolism. But what about Christian truth? It appears to me that that's the big question. In terms of this new model of liberalism that you are projecting, uh, in looking backwards, you say that one of the faults of the of, of the bad liberalism or bad liberal theology was you describe it as developing a certain phenomenon known as uh, well you identified as as uh, sacrophobism. <laughs> they, they became sacrophobic. In other words, they they not only left behind, according to your narrative, and I think you're right here, the doctrinal content of Christianity. They also left behind. Uh, all that uh, that went with it in, in terms of the of what uh, sociologists of religion would call the cultus. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I defer, define um, sacramentalism in broad terms of culture, really religious culture, things you do, um, and I suppose that means beyond just verbal culture of um, preaching and talking and writing about religion. Religion also needs this basis in. Um, live performance and habits, regular ritual habits. And, the, you know, the reformers, of course, were kind of on the fence about this and were trying to reform the sacraments, and some did it more extremely than others. Luther was quite conservative. Uh, Calvin was less conservative. And they um, created a climate of suspicion of um, not just icons and images, but rituals and um, images and, and everything to do with performance, really, and to do with culture and to do with the arts and all this sort of thing, and worship. Um, they wanted to keep worship very limited and plain and austere. And in the um, when when liberal Protestants. Uh, started taking over, that became a huge problem because they inherited this deep aversion, this deep suspicion of ritual culture, and that led them away from seeing what religion essentially is. And, um, you know, most Christians affirm the Eucharist as very essential, and that's a good example because the liberal Christians were suspicious even of that and thinking that might be something we need to get away from. Yeah, I found this a very interesting turn in your book, and it was at this point I, I just wanted to, uh, to, to say I, I think this book is, in that sense, quintessentially Anglican, because if there's any church mm. communion where this kind of, uh, uh, of church culture, uh, you describe it in terms of being uh, cultic liberal, uh, where mm. the, the cultus is all there, the, uh, the, it, and you describe, well, I think a very crucial point when Elizabeth tells her bishops to wear vestments, um, mm. uh, where they are to keep a good bit of the cultus of the Roman Catholic Church, even in terms of, uh, of, of the worship of the Church of England. It struck me, and I, I guess I just want to ask you directly, uh, is, is this not uh, fairly well described as quintessentially Anglican? Yes, you're quite right. Uh, I think I think I am kind of trying to bring out in my own way that uh, balance of um, the sacramental and and the uh, Protestant. I think you'd also find a very similar thing in Lutheranism, absolutely, uh, and probably in other traditions. No, I think Lu- I think Lutheranism is particularly apt there because. Luther made many of the same accommodations, uh, actually, that Elizabeth made, although less self-consciously, I would argue. Yeah, he did. He did. He was surprisingly uh, conservative in, in worship and so on. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, think, I think Anglicanism has got this uh, pursuit of, of the right sort of compromise at its heart. But on the other hand, I don't think it, its theologians... Um, were very successful in general at uh, talking about it, at making it making it uh, a central a central thing to reflect on. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have had to write this book, and it would have all been uh, sorted out a hundred years ago. 
Well, trying to sort it out now, uh, let, let's bring it up into the, uh, the the very modern period, our own contemporary era. And uh, who who do you see, or or what uh, religious bodies or denominations do you see representing a form of liberalism that is at least somewhat consonant with that which you you want to see uh, more represented? Uh, well, I I think um, a lot of the Anglican Church is uh, doing pretty well in in a lot of ways. I think in terms of its practice. Um, I, I can affirm it very much, but I think theologically it doesn't um, think as well as it acts, in a sense, and, yes. and it doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't know quite how to talk about this kind of balance of of the sacramental and the liberal. Uh, instead, it gets kind of caught up in particular liberal causes, and on the other hand, it overdoes certain forms of high church worship. So I, I think it's it's found it difficult to articulate, but it's there um, on the ground, as it were. And, and you know, the average middle-of-the-road Anglican service, I, I, I can heartily approve of. Now, as a theologian uh, concerned with theological method, I have to tell you that I, I thought I, I could predict about three-quarters of the way through your book uh, where you would, uh, where, where you would uh, eventuate in terms of uh, a, a proposed theological method and uh, I, I became unsure as I finished the book. And, and what I thought would happen is that you would present something more like uh, the, uh, the the theological method of George Lindbeck uh, in his post-liberal model, because ah. I would argue that Lindbeck makes many of the same arguments that you're you're trying to make here. He made them some thirty years earlier and and not so comprehensively. But uh, I, I was somewhat surprised you you didn't seem to identify very explicitly with that kind of uh, uh, of understanding based upon the anthropologist Clifford Geertz and others, uh, that religion's a cultural linguistic system and that, uh, that doctrine is itself a cultural linguistic system along with uh, all the ritual and cultists that goes with it. Yeah, I think that that movement um, was important and it had an insight that fed into other forms of theology, but it mainly influenced theology in a pretty conservative uh, Anglo-Catholic direction, I, I would say, is, is is largely what came out of that movement, and so I think it 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 didn't grapple with certain parts of the maybe maybe the more political theopolitical story uh, is is what I'm most interested in. But but in terms of influencing our thoughts about the place of ritual and the relationship between doctrine and ritual, I think that. That book was important, and so were other um, thinkers of that era. So Largely, they were influenced by Wittgenstein, I think. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking of someone, and you certainly reference Alistair McIntyre, but uh, he offers a great deal, I, I think, along the lines of uh, what you're suggesting. But uh, but then again, I think it ends up in a more conservative place. And I think you're right. I think uh, that, that method of Lindbeck and the Yale theologians would lead to a more conservative conclusion that at least yeah. I think you're, you're, you're trying to argue for. That's right. That's right. I, I think that um, they have a very strong insight into the weakness of post-Enlightenment liberal thought in general, including in theology. Um, and that's an important moment in um, ideas of that move away from uh, a certain complacent uh, Valuation of, of liberal thought, but but I think they go too far in the negative direction, and they fail to see that um, despite certain crudities within liberal thought, we we need to affirm something within this whole story. And I think they have a simplistic. I mean, they're largely Roman Catholic, or became so those thinkers, and they have quite a simplistic thing of all of modernity should be opposed. Uh, by a basically kind of medieval synthesis of philosophy and politics and religion. And I think that's um, lacking in nuance in a way. I think we need to admit that it's it's um, more complicated than that and that we need to be both for and against political modernity and, and say there's, there's good as well as bad there, and we need to uh, have a dialogue with it. Now, just to kind of bring all this together in terms of your, your project in this book, 
uh, in terms of reinventing liberal Christianity. As we look to this form of liberal Christianity, of of which you you intend to be the proponent, what is the actual doctrinal or theological content? I mean, for instance, when you talk about this cultic liberal Christianity, you're clearly talking about a Christianity that celebrates the liberal state and is politically engaged with and within it. And you're also talking about uh, a cultus but the theologian in me just wants to know where is the content to that? I mean, in terms, for instance, of uh, of the claims made about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, are are those, in your understanding, to be presented as historical truth claims? Um, I would be quite um, keen to root doctrine within worship and ritual, and say um, we say these things as part of our ritual. We recite the creed in our worship service and so on. So when when we're talking about truth claims and so on, in a sense I want to be a little bit kind of strict about the kind of situation we're making those claims in. Of course we also proclaim to the world, but in a sense we're using ritual language, ritual-based language whenever we talk about Jesus Christ. So I would root all kind of doctrinal claims just in just in remembering that the whole tradition is based in worship and and prayer and praise and proclamation, and I think that's that's the way forward to start, start thinking about what we mean by that. I think that's a fairly radical proposal, but I want to tell you, as an evangelical Christian, I I, I think it has uh, the potential of, of a good bit of traction, and uh, and I, I say that because. Here's what I perceive in terms of something of the exhaustion of uh, of liberal Protestantism. Uh, I, I think you have a millennial generation that is drawn to a, a, a somewhat communitarian understanding of existence. They, they, they want to be together in community, and uh, they want uh, what is described here as the cultus. Uh, they, they, they want the practices of Christianity. They want the hymns. They, they, they want the uh, the liturgy. And yet they're not keen on defending the truth claims. And uh, and, and so I'm, I'm saying this uh, as something of a lament and as a concern as an evangelical, but I, I do think there is a, a cultural opening for the kind of proposal you're making, uh, probably amongst people who, who wouldn't be able to follow your narrative but end up nonetheless where you're pointing. Yeah, I, I, think, I think maybe in a sense I am um, speaking to them or, ha- or have them in mind to some extent, that generation – and um, I think it, it, you know, it might be a healthy thing that it's just it, it might it might it might be a way of finding a way of talking about truth claims that can communicate to um, people outside of the church. You know, that's that's been needed for a long time. So we need to keep thinking about how to do that. Well, in thinking on those lines, I want to shift gears just a little bit and refer to one of your previous writings. Uh, I was uh, asked to write an article for the Wall Street Journal about a year ago on the issue of homosexuality and Christianity. And uh, in writing my article, I cited one of yours, and uh, I simply want to say that I think the article you wrote that at least was published in The Guardian on the 5th of February in 2007 may be to date the most succinct and powerful argument uh, about uh, the momentum and velocity of the great moral revolution we're now experiencing. And and you refer to it as, uh, with reference to the Church, as a pink reformation. I want to take you back to that article just a little bit. Oh, yes. Because you argue there, indeed, it seems to me that the debate about homosexuality poses such a serious threat to organized religion in this country, and you meant the U.K., but let's include the U.S., that it is not absurd to compare it to the Reformation of the 16th century. You, you say that the Church has faced moral issues before, but none like homosexuality. You say that it's because it has a stark either-or quality to it. As you write, either homosexuality is a fully valid alternative to heterosexuality, or it is not. There is no room for compromise, no third way. And uh, thus you say, this is not a normal moral debate, but a pure clash of visceral responses. And then you get to the speed. And uh, But before turning to the velocity, let me just go back. Are, are you uh, still where you were then in 2007 in terms of the scale of, of this moral revolution? It's pretty big. It's pretty big. I mean, I, I think I was being a little bit hyperbolic there. I'm not but sure I'd of that. Say, I, I, I'm not sure you I'd were. I'd say it's still, it's still pretty unique. It's, it's, I'd say it's different from other moral uh, problems or issues that the Church has faced. And, and, that, and that is to do with uh, if, you're, if you're not for it, you seem to be uh, immoral rather than just neutral. 
But that's the point, isn't it? As a matter yeah. of fact, I, th- I think that's the point you made more clearly than anyone else I know. Uh, you say that the moral revolution only – and I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here – but it only really has taken place when there's an entire inversion such that the thing that was sanctioned is now authorized and the thing that was authorized is now sanctioned. I think this is right. what many Christians don't realize is indeed happening. Right. I think you're right. And I think that the Church of England in particular is is still dealing with that sort of concept. The new Archbishop of Canterbury, um, unfortunately he didn't cite my article, but he was uh, saying something a little bit similar. Of we still need to reckon with just how revolutionary this this new attitude is. And, and you know, it's part of secular liberal attitudes, but it's it's still very difficult for, for, for Christians to deal with. Well, that is the scale. Now to the speed. I want to read you a, a few of your sentences. You write, and there is another more complex factor. The public change in attitudes towards homosexuality is not just the waning of a taboo. It's not just the case of a practice losing its aura of immorality. Instead, the case for homosexual equality takes the form of a moral crusade. Those who want to uphold the old attitude are not just dated moralists. They are accused of moral deficiency. The old taboo surrounding this practice doesn't disappear, but bounces back at those who seek to uphold it. Then you wrote, such a sharp turnaround is, I think, without parallel in modern history. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly fast. It's just since, you know, probably the 1970s. It's amazingly fast. Yeah, in the article I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, I, I cited uh, historian Kawaii Apaya, who points out that the abolitionist movement and slavery took the better part of three centuries. Right. And uh, this is taking a little bit more than three decades. Right. To, to what, in, in terms of the conditions of modernity, uh, let me ask you to speculate here, w- would you attribute this, this radical turn, as you say, a turn without parallel in moral history? W- how did this happen? What were the social and theological conditions that, uh, that allowed this to happen? Oh, I don't know. I suppose that's got a lot to do with um, social changes of the of the mid twentieth century, um, uh, and also maybe the desire for reform that you get in the nineteen sixties. That there's a there's a huge kind of moral reformist energy that demands uh, a new cause after civil rights, after feminism. Um, and so there's a, there's a huge appetite for something controversial to get stuck into. That's partly it. That's the kind of sociological reason. Um, and, of course, you just have a waning of patriarchy. Of I mean, it's tied up with feminism to a large extent. You get, you get a waning of assumptions about gender roles. And, you know, that suddenly opens up the, the issue of sexuality. Uh, indeed, it does, and uh, I, I think it opens up a host of other issues. But I think one of the preconditions uh, had to be uh, the, the, the waning of biblical authority writ large, such that uh, the, the the culture is no longer informed by, or perhaps even haunted by, uh, a, a biblical morality that once had been taken for granted, if not legislated. Well, that's partly the case, but you know, you get you 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 obviously get. Uh, liberal Christians as well, who who are citing the Bible in a different way. So I think it's um, just it's it's been an intense problem for the liberal church, in my opinion, because you get this extreme polarization. And you know, I'm I'm uh, vaguely liberal on the issue, but I I regret the way that it has been heightened up into such an extreme crusade. By, by the liberals, I think in a way that's counterproductive, and so I would have liked to see a more gradual uh, movement. So I'm a bit of a conservative liberal on the issue, I suppose. Well, that's something of a, a, a context uh, that uh, I, I think I understand uh, in terms of this conversation, uh, a conservative liberal. There, there are many gradations, but on the other hand, I, I think where the liberal Protestant denominations are is well described in the article I decided by you, in which you say there really isn't any middle ground. Uh, that th- it is a yes or no question. Either homosexuality is a perfectly valid sexual expression, and thus homosexual relationships are too, or they're not. And I, I think that's why it's very hard uh, to try to understand where that middle ground might be. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, at, at the end of the day, uh, people have to get off the fence. But I, but I think that 
it's important, nevertheless, to try and find um, a nuanced way of making your position. I, th I think, um, for example, Rowan Williams did reasonably well as Archbishop of Canterbury in just, just in showing the complexity of it uh, through his um, very difficult and sort of tortuous thinking and position on it. I think that was, in a way, quite an honest um, position to be in because he, he was really reflecting what the whole communion was going through. So, so I think it's possible to deal with the issue um, taking on its complexities, even if at the end of the day it is either or. Now, just uh, with a final question about that Anglican context, uh, where do you see the Anglican communion? Uh, that's one question, and then I guess the, the subtext uh, uh, of that would be the Church of England. Wh wh where do you see these church bodies going? Um, You've written a good quite, deal about this. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to read at the moment. I think there's there's a um, optimism still surrounding uh, Justin Welby, the new new Archbishop, but no one quite knows whether that's well founded in anything he's actually going to do. Any any ability he really has to fi to find a way forward on on the issues uh, that 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 are such a problem. Uh, I, I think that the Church of England has quite particular issues and problems of its own that are in a way exclusive to it, and they're a bit different from the rest of the communion. And I think one issue is that they need to be sorted out so that it can lead a really united uh, church. And that partly has to do with issues about church and state and establishment. I think it needs to sort of refresh its situation within within the nation uh, and create a more coherent ideology really of of Anglicanism and I think that I think that's possible and I think that um, the American church has a role to play but at the moment it, uh, the American church is conforming a bit too much to a kind of rebellious liberal script and is not is not really taking the lead either. So I think there's a question of leadership, um, that w in a sense, which side of the Atlantic should lead. I want to conclude with a question that, uh, that might surprise you a bit, but uh, I, I think is, uh, is entirely appropriate given the context. So you are a proponent of reinventing liberal Christianity and, and, and talking to an evangelical Christian and a largely evangelical Christian uh, listenership to this program what would be your message, or, or, or what would be the one thing you would think we had better see or we had better know, uh, based upon your analysis of these things? Um, I think the most important thing is that we need to uh, refresh our thinking about political history, and we need to see it afresh, the role that Protestants have played in creating the modern world, including the secular world, and we need, in a way, to have a more positive account of our role in that. And instead of saying secular liberalism is the enemy, we must uh, oppose it with everything we've got, we need to say uh, we, we should identify what's good within it. And what we, as Christians, as Protestants, have contributed to that. And I think if we can start a conversation like that, then we can get away from certain unhelpful kind of assumptions. Well, Theo Hobson, I want to thank you today for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thanks very much. I enjoyed that conversation with Theo Hobson, and I had been looking forward to it for some time because I had been reading part by part and essay by essay much of the material that ended up in his new book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity. As an evangelical Christian, I take liberal Christianity very seriously. I take liberal theology as a matter of tremendous academic interest. And furthermore, in the contemporary context, just as I said to Theo Hobson, I believe there's a new cultural opening for liberal theology and for liberal Christianity. And that's something I see as a matter of concern and certainly of deep interest. The basic premise of Theo Hobson in his book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity, is the existence of these two versions or variants of liberal Christianity – the one that moves forward by evacuating Christianity of its doctrinal and theological content, and the other one that, as he proposes, would engage the liberal state 
and continue all the practices and rituals of the Christian faith. I think he's actually on to something in that this new version of theological liberalism he proposes doesn't yet exist, or it doesn't exist certainly in any full or comprehensive sense as he proposes it. But on the other hand, I think the reason that it doesn't exist is because it probably is inseparable from that other form of theological liberalism that he wants to reject. That is, the liberal move of surrendering the distinctive theological and doctrinal truth claims, in other words, the cognitive content of Christianity. As Theo Hobson tells the story, he weaves a very interesting theological and historical narrative. He goes back, indeed, to the New Testament. He doesn't stay there long. He moves most swiftly to the Reformation and that which follows. Very interesting readings of figures such as Martin Luther and John Calvin, and later fascinating readings of theologians ranging from John Henry Newman to Karl Barth to Friedrich Schleiermacher. In terms of the contemporary scene, there's almost no one who escapes his attention. This is a very widely read theologian who's trying to understand the contemporary theological landscape and, for that matter, the theological context that has brought us to this contemporary moment. Along the way, he draws some considerable insights. For instance, when he's dealing with what he describes as the sacrophobia of much contemporary Protestantism, he really is onto something when he describes the sacrophobia of much contemporary liberal Protestantism. In other words, liberal Protestants are generally unsure what to do in terms of Christian worship. What do you do with these acts that are no longer substantiated by the theological truths that you once believed? The problem, I think, for his theory is that there's no way around that awkwardness. But, as I said in my conversation with him, I do think there is a rising generation of young people who would like to try to find something like this liberal Christianity that Theo Hobson is projecting. In the face of modernity and all of its anti-supernaturalism, in the context of the American college and university, not to mention the millennial culture, there's a lot of temptation to say we can do without all those distinctive truth claims, all that cognitive content, all those propositional doctrines of Christianity, and we can still go and sing the hymns and be involved in the liturgy and be involved in congregational life. We can be surrounded by all the stained glass, or for that matter, all the contemporary sound system, and we can feel ourselves situated in something that would be called Christianity. But without these distinctive truth claims, without believing in the actual truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ most centrally, what's really there to be embraced in the cultus, other than a mere practice? I found it very interesting and illuminating that in my conversation with Theo Hobson, he was very honest When I pressed him on the truth status of the theological truth claims of Scripture, he pointed to the fact that these are all embedded in ritual. In other words, we say these things because they're a part of the liturgy. In other words, we say them as if we're saying them in a different sense than we would say them on the college campus or to our neighbor across the fence. That, in a nutshell, may be the clearest distinction between evangelical Christianity and liberal Protestantism. Evangelical Christians affirm the doctrinal content of Christianity, and we mean to affirm it in the same way, whatever the context. Whether we're speaking to a research scientist or a kindergartner, whether we're involved in the catechesis of children or education of college and university students, the truth claims are to be understood as equally in force. An argument can be made that much of evangelical Christianity is barren of some of the ritual and liturgy that is necessary for authentic Christian worship. But you can certainly look at the other side of the fence here and see that the presence of those things doesn't necessarily indicate the presence of any cognitive commitment to the doctrinal and theological truth claims of Christianity. I think one of the most important insights of Theo Hobson's book is the intellectual victory of deism. Going all the way back to the 18th century and certainly fast-forwarding to the modern day, he's right, as he writes in one of his essays, he came as a young person to understand that the doctrinless Christianity— of that bad liberal Protestantism he wants to replace basically just becomes a form of humanism and a barely disguised agnosticism. He's also right when he writes about deism and its victory that that basically explains the trajectory of that old form of liberal Protestant theology going all the way back to Schleiermacher and continuing to the present day. A conversation with Theo Hobson about his new book, Reinventing Liberal Christianity, affords evangelical Christians an opportunity for a sobering moment. It's easy for many evangelicals to believe that liberal Christianity is simply imploded. Certainly, you look at the collapse of mainline Protestant denominations, both in terms of membership and in terms of cultural influence, and you could say that it seems to be something that is disappearing rather than coming. And looking at liberal Protestant theology, it's easy for many evangelicals to say that's simply old school. That's no longer a continuing challenge. But as the history of the Christian church and as the history of Christian theology specifically will both demonstrate, these issues come back again and again. 
This is a very honest book with a very honest title, Reinventing Liberal Christianity. The cultic liberal form of Christianity that Theo Hobson proposes is indeed a new variant of liberal theology. But as my conversation with him made very clear, it's really not a return to the kind of truth claims and doctrinal commitments that were the hallmark of Orthodox Christianity in times past. Rather, it's an effort to try to have the modern state and the modern world in terms of the Enlightenment and all of its patterns of thinking, and have the liturgy and the ritual of Christianity as well. To have an engagement with a liberal political state from the standpoint of a liberal Christianity, but without paying the price for the cognitive commitments that historic Christianity has always represented. Finally, I was glad in my conversation with Theo Hobson to be able to draw attention to that article he wrote back in 2007 on the great moral revolution represented by homosexuality. Remember the title of that article? It was about a pink reformation. In other words, Theo Hobson argued then, and affirms even now, that the challenge of homosexuality is theologically, not just ethically speaking, tantamount to a demand for a new reformation in the church. In that regard, I can't go where Theo Hobson wants the church to go, but I certainly affirm that I think he has rightly understood the scale and the speed of the moral revolution taking place around us. It's always a privilege to have a conversation with a highly engaged mind, and that certainly describes Theo Hobson. I want to thank him again for joining me for Thinking in Public. Before I close, I want to invite you to join us on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on Tuesday, October the 29th through Thursday, October the 31st for the Expositor Summit 2013. This year's Expositor Summit aims to contribute to the health of local churches by restoring the centrality of expository preaching. Preachers, pastors, students, and all who love the scriptures are invited to hear H.B. Charles Jr. and Alistair Begg, who will join me as keynote speakers at this word-driven event. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.